On this new series that we're starting up for the show, we're going to delve into the captivating world of baseball folklore, and we're going to explore the legends surrounding the game's most iconic figures. So what's true and what's not? We're going to break that down, and we're starting with none other than the great Ty Cobb. Today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. It is I, your host, Jeff Lambert. It is a pleasure to be back with you after a two-week break. Got to go on vacation in the southwestern part of the United States. We saw the Grand Canyon. We went to Zion National Park. It was amazing. Great time to unplug and be able to just spend some quality time with the family. And I'm very happy to be back with you. So the episode that we're going to be covering today is a new series that we're starting up. I have been uh, wanting to jump into looking at some of the game's best players. And there's obviously always these stories that go with these iconic individuals that may have some truth, may have no truth, may be completely true. And I wanted to uh, take some time to break those down. So we're starting with what I think is one of the uh, most controversial figures in baseball history, and that is Ty Cobb. So we're going to jump into his story. I picked the three most common um, things about Ty Cobb that's often tied into him as a player, and we're going to explore whether those things are true or not. So before we jump into things, I want to say thank you and welcome to the many new free subscribers that we have to the weekly newsletter since the last time we got together. So Mark Menino, Charles Gatton, E.M. Tump, D.S. Lindholm, Nicholas Mew, Circa 1979, You Unselled, The Athlete Archives, and H. Grief. Thank you very much for signing up for the free weekly newsletter. It's great to have you. If you're interested in getting this show directly to your inbox with extra photos, audio clips, videos to deepen your experience with this episode, all you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com. That's there for you to be able to join on our free tier and just be able to learn more about the topics that we're jumping into together. So without further ado, let's go into today's episode, Fact versus Fiction, Ty Cobb. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Ty Cobb was renowned as the Georgia Peach, and he was a baseball superstar who left a very unforgettable mark on the sport. But stories and myths have swirled around his playing career and personality both then and now, so we're here to try and set the record straight. So we're going to look at the commonly held beliefs about this Hall of Famer. Then we're going to look for the cold hard truth where it's available, and we're going to try to set the record straight. And you know what? The man known as Tyrus Raymond Cobb absolutely deserves some research into his playing career and life and the opinions that have followed him since. So let's start off with our first commonly held belief about Ty Cobb to most fans. 
And that is that he was baseball's first superstar. So how would I rate this belief in terms of its validity? I would say that this is mostly true. The important word that we need to insert here is that he was baseball's first star on a national level. So without a doubt, Ty was one of his era's most famous and dominant players. He combined this aggressive style of play with an undeniable talent, and it attracted fans to him in droves. And he was controversial off the field, too, because he had these numerous altercations with teammates, the media, and fans that spanned the course of his career. And we're going to talk more about that later. But let's look at Ty Cobb's superstardom through two different lenses. Let's look at it through what he did on the field that made him a household name as baseball became more accessible nationally. And then let's look at how the media embraced him as we see mass media uh, becoming uh, something that is a daily occurrence in everyone's lives and homes. So look at the, some of these career stats, folks. Number one, Ty Cobb is widely credited with setting 90 separate MLB records during his career. He led the American League in batting average 12 times. Some historians say 11, 11 or 12. And that included three seasons with a batting average over 400. He won the Triple Crown in 1909. He led the league in runs scored nine times, and he led it in stolen bases eight times. He stole home 54 times, and he still holds that record, and honestly, probably will forever. That's uh, one I don't see being broken anytime soon. He finished his career with a batting average of 367, and that's still the highest in Major League history. Ty was also the youngest player ever to compile 4,000 hits and score 2,000 runs. He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1936 on the very first ballot, and at the time, he received the most votes of any player on the inaugural ballot. He received 222 out of a possible 226 votes. That's a 98.2% acceptance rate. And that record held up all the way until 1999, when Tom Seaver got more than that. So, there you have it. That's the on-field play. And certainly, undeniably, he was at the top in almost every category when he was on the field. Now, his on-field play came at a time when mass media was taking off in the United States. We had radios and nationally syndicated magazines become really common in American households for the first time. We also see nationally syndicated newspapers really establishing their dominance as being the thing that everybody read over uh, local and maybe regional options. And so this all fueled into having big media be able to tell a story on a national level to people in their homes. And Ty Cobb, because of what he did on the field, became somebody that the media focused on very intently throughout his career. So let me just give you some examples of that. He was featured in almost every national magazine during his career. Some of those include Life Magazine, Time Magazine. He was in the wildly popular Saturday Evening Post during his career. He was the subject of a biography by Grantland Rice, who was one of the most famous sports writers of the era. He was a popular speaker, and he was invited to give lectures across the country to several different brotherhoods, organizations, uh, associations, memberships. He was someone that everybody wanted to hear speak. He was also a pitchman for up-and-coming nationally popular products. So, for instance, he was the national spokesman for Coca-Cola and Wrigley's Gum. 
He was even featured in a silent film called Somewhere in Georgia that was released in 1917. So this is the first time we see a baseball player uh, become a media icon nationally. Everybody knew this guy's name. He was on the radio every night. He was in every nationally syndicated newspaper, magazine. Everybody knew who Ty Cobb was. And that really made him... I think making this commonly held belief true. He was baseball's first superstar on a national level. So you can go ahead and mark that as correct. Let's look at commonly held belief number two. Ty Cobb was a dirty player. This one, we have to choose our words very carefully. Ty Cobb, dirty player. Eh, Okay. So Ty Cobb was aggressive on the field. There's no doubt about that. And that didn't sit well with some of his peers and the media in general at certain times throughout his career. But was he a dirty player? I think the evidence says no. Let's go ahead and go through it. So Ty's on-field aggressiveness is well-documented. It wasn't random or accidental. The man ran the base paths like a banshee. He had nine different sliding styles that he used. He was one of those guys who just went full on in everything he did, whether he was running the base paths or whether he was going after a ball, just that kind of player. And that wasn't by accident. At just 18 years old, when he was starting uh, his up and coming route to professional baseball, he joined the Augusta Tourists in Georgia and they played in the South Atlantic League. And the manager of that team, who was a gentleman named George Lady, took Ty under his wing. Now, according to a biography by Sabre member Stephen J. Rice, Lady was a big fan of Cobb right from the start. He saw this kid's talent, and he even had this to say in an interview. He said, quote, This kid is a high-strung and can't be bullied. He's got to be nursed along, handled like a prancing colt, if he were to become a fine, thoroughbred racehorse, end quote. So Lady took Cobb under his wing, and his coaching style was very... Uh, unique for the time period because he promoted overt aggressiveness on the field, especially when it came to base running. That same article stated that Lady, quote, emphasized pinpoint bunting and aggression on the base paths, end quote. So that style of play that Cobb learned early on at the age of 18 stuck with him as he entered the professional ranks. So some players didn't like that. He, you know, he came in hard on some slides. Uh, you know, he would not be afraid to argue it out with certain players on the base paths, but Keep in mind, this is the dead ball era where people would fight at the drop of a hat. So we have that. But to call him a dirty player, I think it's a stretch because there's really only one well-documented incident that really points to him being a dirty player. And even that incident, historians disagree on whether it was intentional or not. So let me share that with you. There was a game in 1909 against the Philadelphia Athletics. Ty Cobb was playing for the Detroit Tigers at the time. He was on first. He slid into second base with his spikes up, and he injured the forearm of third baseman Frank Baker of the Philadelphia Athletics. And the newspaper reported the next day that, quote, this was from the newspaper, Cobb spiked Barber's right forearm in sliding into third back in the first inning. Baker was aggrieved regarding the injury as premeditated. Cobb was out easily and went into the bag feet first only to be tagged, end quote. So this didn't sit well. The newspapers immediately picked it up, started saying that this was intentional, that he came in spikes up. And it didn't help either that the Philadelphia Athletics manager was the infamous Connie Mack. And Connie Mack was upset about this. After the game in his post-game interview, he had this to say about Cobb. Quote, 
Cobb is the greatest baseball player in the world, but he's also one of the dirtiest. He boasted before the game that he could get some of the athletics before the game was over, and he made good by spiking Barber and all but cutting the legs off Collins. Such tactics ought to be looked into by the American League, and I intend to see that the matter is taken up. Cobb may be a great player, but he is a pinhead in that respect. Organized baseball ought not to permit such a malefactor to disgrace it, end quote. So obviously, especially after Connie Mack's words, the media was really quick to portray Cobb as a dirty player as a result of this. And this tag really followed him through most of his career. And it seems to me that it's somewhat unfair because other specific on-field incidents of dirty play are almost non-existent. So like I said, I think that there was a general feeling that Cobb played the game really hard and that didn't sit well with certain players. But for him to intentionally go after and injure players to play the game dirty, there's little evidence for that. As a matter of fact, Cobb even submitted a letter to the American League president at one point in his career uh, asking that there be a rule passed to make sure that everyone's spikes actually get filed down because of his concern over that. So, you know, again, if it was someone who was intentionally going out to do that, I think you got to look at the evidence and say, well, why would he take that route? Why aren't there other well-documented incidents of him doing this? You got to go with what the evidence shows, right? So that was the main on-field incident, the only one that I could find that pointed to him having a, a dirty play style. But I do have to throw in one more because there was another technical on-field incident, but I don't think this really relates, but you know, you decide for yourself. Ty Cobb got into a fist fight with an umpire once. Yes, you heard that right. So the story goes, it's worth telling, and that's why I'm throwing it in here. Cobb got upset over a strike call in a late inning game, and during the argument, he told umpire Billy Evans that he would whip him right at home plate, but he wasn't going to because he knew that he would get suspended. So the umpire, Billy Evans, told Cobb, okay, meet me in the umpire's dressing room after the game. So the brawl didn't even make it there once the game ended. The players from both teams decided to follow them into the dugout and they formed a ring under that dugout for the two to fight. Well, several witnesses uh, said that the fight ended in a draw and it was the bloodiest that they had ever seen. And Cobb received a suspension for one game and Evans did not. He was back officiating the next game covered in bandages. So I certainly don't think that labels him as a dirty player on the field, but it certainly points to the fact that he had a temper, which we're going to talk about later on. Still wanted to throw that in for you just kind of as an aside, because it technically did happen on the field, right? So there you have it. So this is aggressive, dirty. No, hundred percent. And I think the great general Douglas MacArthur. Yeah. He had something to say about Ty Cobb that I think summarizes the difference between Cobb being aggressive and Cobb being dirty. This is what he had to say. Quote, few names have left a firmer imprint upon the stages of the history of American times than that of Ty Cobb. For a quarter of a century, his aggressive exploits on the diamond, while inviting opposition as well as acclaim, brought high drama. This great athlete seems to have understood from early in his professional career that the competition of baseball, just as in war, defensive strategy never has produced ultimate victory. So, you know, offense wins. He felt that that was Cobb's, I think, overall way that he approached the game. Not so much to injure, hurt, or belittle players, but just playing at 125%. So I labeled this commonly held belief about Ty Cobb as incorrect, not true. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And that brings us to our third commonly held belief about Ty Cobb. This one is the most complicated, but we're going to go through it. And that was that Ty Cobb was a racist. There is evidence to support both sides of this argument, so I'm going to look at both, I'm going to present you the evidence, and I'm going to leave it at that. So Ty Cobb, during his career, had six documented altercations with African Americans during his playing career, and I'm going to outline them for you. The year was 1907, and Ty Cobb was at spring training for the Detroit Tigers, and he had a confrontation with a black groundskeeper named Bungie Davis. Davis apparently attempted to greet Cobb with a handshake or a pat on the shoulder, and that angered Cobb because, according to the account, Cobb slapped Davis in the face and pursued him until Bungie Davis's wife tried to intervene, at which point it goes that Cobb grabbed her by the neck and choked her until his teammate, Tigers catcher Charlie Schmidt, intervened and pulled Cobb away and punching him in the face in the process to get him away from the groundskeeper and his wife. That's documented incident number one. Number two, in 1908, Ty Cobb stepped into freshly poured asphalt while he was walking in Detroit, and that led to a disagreement with a nearby worker named Fred Collins, who was African-American. Cobb reacted at being called out for stepping in the wet asphalt by punching Collins in the face, which caused him to to fall to the ground. Now, this went to a Detroit judge who was probably likely a Tigers fan and knew Cobb well. He found Cobb guilty of battery from the incident, but he issued a suspended sentence. And to avoid a civil lawsuit, Cobb paid Collins $75. 1908, $75 is a lot of money. So that's number two. Number three, in 1909, while in Cleveland, Ty Cobb faced more serious charges because he supposedly stabbed a night watchman named George Stansfield. Stansfield had intervened, reportedly, because Cobb had slapped a black elevator operator. Now, Cobb's legal team, including the former mayor of Cleveland, managed to get the charges reduced to assault and battery, and Cobb ended up pleading guilty and was fined $100. So Stansfield later filed a lawsuit because he felt that the charges were not sufficient and that was settled out of court monetarily. In 1912 in New York, Ty Cobb entered the stands during a sixth-inning game to confront a heckler. That heckler's name was Claude Luker. According to eyewitness accounts, Luker had used a racial slur against Cobb and had called him a N-lover. 
Cobb jumped into the stands after Luker after he said that and started to hit him. The fan supposedly told Cobb to stop because Luker was missing seven fingers on his hand, which he had lost due to an industrial accident at his job. And Cobb allegedly responded, I don't care if he doesn't have feet and kept hitting the guy. So Cobb was suspended for 10 games due to this incident, and he expressed his reasons for fighting the guy were related to being called that slur in an interview with the Detroit Free Press. Again, uh, Luker was an African-American. Number five, according to Dan Holmes in his 2004 book, Ty Cobb, a a biography in 1914, Cobb had returned home from a road trip with a guest in Detroit, and he discovered his wife was upset at home. And it was over a dispute that she had had with a local butcher named William Carpenter. So Cobb called Carpenter on the phone and threatened to visit his shop. Then Cobb supposedly armed himself with a revolver and went down to Carpenter's shop. And when Carpenter saw him come in his shop with the revolver, immediately apologized. But not before his assistant, who was carrying a meat cleaver, approached Cobb thinking that he needed to get involved. So in response, Cobb pistol whipped the assistant. And Carpenter ran into the back and called the police. The police showed up. They arrested Cobb. He ended up spending a night in jail. He eventually pled guilty to disturbing the peace and paid a $50 fine. And then the sixth incident in 1919, Cobb allegedly used a racial slur against a hotel chambermaid while he was in Detroit. Her name was Ada Morris. Morris uh, responded to that racial slur and Cobb reacted by kicking her in the stomach, causing her to fall down a flight of stairs. Morris suffered a broken rib and required hospitalization, and that led to eviction from the hotel by the manager. So Morris subsequently filed a $10,000 lawsuit against Ty Cobb. Now, the incident was reported in African-American newspapers, but it was not covered in the white newspapers at the time. And ultimately, Morris received an undisclosed settlement from Cobb's estate, and she ended up dropping Um, the charges going after the the lawsuit, excuse me, not the charges. So those are six different accounts of Ty Cobb having an altercation with an African-American. Seems like a disturbing pattern, right? Let's look at the other side just so we can balance the scales. Number one, let's go back to the Bungie Davis incident, the first one with the groundskeeper. So that incident only had one eyewitness, and that was Cobb's teammate who ended up breaking up the fight, Charlie Schmidt. Remember, he punched Cobb in the face, he said, to separate them. Well, Schmidt and Cobb had a well-known feud throughout their playing career, and they were considered enemies. So the source is certainly questionable because there were no other corroborating sources to say this happened. And on top of that, Cobb was particularly... um, upset whenever this was brought up and would deny the reports about the incident for the rest of his life. And on top of that, Bumpy Davis and his wife never filed charges or spoke publicly about the incident. And I just realized I said Bumpy, not Bumpy, Bungie. (laughs) Excuse me. So that's that's the first one just to give the uh, other side to that incident. You also have author Charles Learsen. He wrote a book recently about Ty Cobb called Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. And he stated in his book that he looked into these incidents and particularly the one in Cleveland, which was where he, uh, remember supposedly stabbed an individual and, uh, slapped the elevator operator. Well, 
Learzen said that his research shows that both the elevator operator and the bellhop who Cobb stabbed were actually white men. They weren't black. And he figured this out by going into census records to back that up. So Learson also states that the butcher incident also involved white men and that they were mistakenly reported by the media as African-American. Both of those incidents ended up in an autobiography, which we're going to talk about in a second, that had a lot of inaccurate information about Ty Cobb that fueled into this, um, this, um, the belief that Ty Cobb was a racist. So that brings me to the third one. Cobb defenders will point out that Al Stump, who was the ghostwriter for Ty Cobb's first autobiography, which was released shortly after Ty Cobb died, so we never had the chance to refute a lot of this, that autobiography that came out was full of sensationalism and lies, and it was because of the fact that Cobb and his ghostwriter here, Al Stump, had a longstanding bad blood rivalry. So in order to make the book sell as much as possible, Stump included a lot of stories in that book that painted Cobb to be a villain in a lot of ways, including several of these stories that we mentioned above. And so there is this belief by Cobb's defenders that a lot of these stories are either mistold or untrue because there's not a lot of corroborating evidence to support that it happened or it happened the way that Stump said it. And Stump was, uh, known to be not someone who told the truth. As a matter of fact, this is what uh, Learson had to say in his book. He said, quote, Stump was such a hack that he was banned from contributing to both TV Guide and the Saturday Evening Post. One by one, he alienated the kinds of magazines that had fact-checking departments. That's because he produced fiction, end quote. So there's another uh, common response by Cobb Defenders. One could also point to Ty Cobb's many comments and actions supporting African-American equality. Uh, For instance, when he was asked about newcomer Jackie Robinson in 1952, he said, quote, the Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. Uh, He has the right to play professional baseball and who's to say he has not, end quote. Additionally, Cobb came from a family of well-known abolitionists and integrationists. For instance, his grandfather was run out of several towns across the South during Civil War times for preaching anti-slavery messages, and his father was an outspoken supporter of ending segregation in the South, too. So he came from a family of individuals that certainly did not show uh, racist uh, attitudes. You also have historian Wesley Fricks, who's considered one of the most uh, forefront historians about Cobb's uh, career in defense. He has spoken up in recent years at length about Ty Cobb, saying that he's collected thousands of newspaper articles about him, both good and bad, and not one of them labeled him a racist. It's not exactly um, exhaustive in terms of research, but that's a claim that he's making too. So what is the truth, folks? This is a tough one. Without a doubt, I mean, Ty Cobb had a bad temper. There's no doubt about it, whether it was altercations with fellow players, members of the media, Uh, you name it, he didn't hold back from using violence to solve his problems. That much we can say. But in all honesty, the cases of Ada Morris and Bungie Davis, they both are particularly troubling to me. And the fact that um, I think there was less of an avenue for African Americans to air their grievances and get fair treatment in the courts. And uh, considering Cobb was an icon at the times, It's just, it's very hard for them to have their side of the story told in a way that's fair. But 
This is why I'm presenting the information to you. And you can make your decisions because you also have to weigh in the side, like I said about that. Cobb was supportive of integration in baseball, and he comes from a family of well-known individuals who spoke out against inequality against African-Americans. So it's hard for me to say confidently that he was an overt racist, but it certainly is troubling to say the least. So there's both sides of that. Can we label this true or not? I think at best, it has to be at least looked at as partially true. I'll be interested to hear your feedback on that. So let's round off by examining Ty Cobb's overall legacy. I mean, it's been decades, ever since he died in the 60s. He's had decades of villainization overall. His legacy is getting a second look right now, about over the past decade or so. And that debate continues without uh, a definitive answer. And that's evidenced by in 2015, when the Atlanta Braves moved to their new stadium. The only statue that they didn't bring along of Georgia baseball um, heroes was Ty Cobb. His statue wasn't moved to the new stadium. And I think that's an example of, you know, this process we're going through of how do we judge players in history in terms of the rights and the wrongs, what's true, what's not, how do we feel about them as fans and as people that support the game. And more than any other dead ball era player, Ty Cobb really carries that legacy of greatness on the field, but he's weighed down like no other player because of the trappings of celebrity culture, which uniquely were thrust upon him. So he was really the first to go through this in baseball's history. And as a result, his reputation obviously has suffered. But this is why baseball history matters, because these conversations shape what the game means now and what it's going to look like tomorrow. So I think it's really important for us to keep talking, researching, debating, and separating truth from fiction where we can. Folks, thanks for joining me for another episode. It's great to get back onto a regular schedule with you. I look forward to your feedback. Please shoot me an email, leave me a comment in the uh, newsletter. Uh, However you want to connect, let me know what you think. Thanks for joining me. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. See you later.